Jesus is my hero. A hero sacrifices him or herself for the benefit of others. And that's what Jesus did. The words of that incredible song are right from the scripture, particularly Isaiah 53, that talks about a suffering servant, a suffering servant who would come with strength, but would give that strength for the benefit of others, who would be a suffering servant led away like a lamb led to a slaughter, pouring out his soul even to death so that love would be victorious over hate, that love would be victorious over violence, that love would be victorious over suffering, that love would be victorious over injustice, that love would be victorious over every evil that exists in the world and that exists even in our own heart. So Jesus is my hero. Heroes captivate us. There's nothing that captures our attention and our affection like a true selfless hero. That's why every great story told, every great book written, every great movie made has a, a hero, a selfless hero at the center. So what does a hero do? Well, a hero expends their strength at their own peril to give strength to others. That's what a hero does. Every hero expends their own strength at their own peril to bring strength to others. And so by that definition, Jesus is the greatest hero who has ever existed. Now, we have a tendency to use the word hero, I think, a little bit loosely. We have called athletes heroes. That happens a lot. We can call a basketball player a hero who strikes down a three-pointer at the buzzer to win the game. Well, that's super clutch, very athletic. I couldn't do that, but that's not heroic. I mean, really, it's not heroic. We have called actors who play heroes heroes. I'm not quite sure that fits. You play pretend very well, that has a place in this world, it's entertaining, it's wonderful, but that's not heroic. A hero is someone who sacrifices his or her own strength, sacrifices his or her own glory, power, and possessions to benefit people who are in need. That's what a hero is. And we have a lot of heroes. You might be sitting next to one. A soldier who moves into the line of fire to save a wounded brother. A first responder who's chosen a vocation that puts him or herself at risk to protect others. Zach Edwards, who just a couple of days ago, a groom who is being married on a beach, sees a drowning teenager, and in his wedding gear, goes into the ocean and saves this drowning kid. Ian Grillet, who put himself in front of a gunman who was committing a hate crime, took a bullet for a total stranger, that's a hero. Stephen Jones, a homeless man in London who immediately following a terrorist attack went right to work saving the lives of children. These are heroes. There's thousands of them all over the place. A hero is someone who sacrifices his own strength, glory, power, and possessions to benefit people in need. So Jesus is my hero. Philippians chapter 2 is likely the first hymn, the first song of the early church, and it details the heroism of Christ, how, how exalted he was and how low he became to save us. Listen to Philippians 2, 6. Being in the very nature of God, Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Here is Jesus, who is the very nature of God. He has everything, the full power of divinity, and he chose not to use an ounce of it for his own benefit. That's what a hero does. 
Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. A hero takes all that he has and expends it for the benefit of others, becoming nothing. The very nature of God became nothing, taking the form of a human being, but more, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The most painful and humiliating way to die The very nature of God gave his life on a cross for us. He died as a servant, but he also lived as a servant. He spent his entire life serving those who were powerless, voiceless, serving the underprivileged and the outcast, the rejected, the alone, the ones who were labeled sinners by the religious. And for that cause, a mission that was given to him directly by the Heavenly Father, for that cause, he was murdered. And you could even say he was martyred, giving his life to save others. The very strength of God himself was expended to become the weakest among us to save the world. And what the cross tells us is that there was no limit to the love that he was willing to give. He boldly took his ministry to the capital of Jerusalem and he knew when he went there he would die. But he went there anyway because this message of love, this ministry of grace had to get to all Nations, And in order to get to all nations, it had to go through the capital city of Jerusalem. And so he boldly went to Jerusalem knowing exactly what would happen. In fact, overlooking Jerusalem, in Matthew 20, 18, Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death. He knew what was coming. Now, because Jesus knew he would die in Jerusalem, you could label him a martyr and that would be understandable. He was in control of whether he lived or died and he chose to go through Jerusalem and he chose to take the path of death. In fact, in John 10, 18, he says, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up. So because Jesus was in control of whether he lived or died and chose the path of death, you could label him a martyr. But most martyrs have a deranged obsession with death. They actually seek death. So in that sense, Jesus was not a classic or traditional martyr. He didn't seek death. He didn't embrace death. In fact, he fought it. He fought it in prayer with his heavenly father. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's by himself alone in the middle of the night. He's begging his disciples to stay up with him to pray. He's begging his heavenly father not to go to the cross. In fact, he says this in Matthew 26, 39, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup of suffering be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is the heart of Christ. In his humanity, he didn't want to go to the cross, the suffering, the shame, the scorn, the humiliation, knowing what he would endure, he didn't want to do it. So he's more of a hero than a martyr. He's a hero that knew the price that was going to be paid. He wanted to live. He didn't want to die, but he knew the price that needed to be paid, and he went willingly to pay the price in full. That's what a martyr does. That's what a hero does. So Jesus is my hero. But Jesus is also my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And there's a difference. Um, A hero is someone that we could, at a distance, admire, right? In fact, I would say the vast, vast majority of this world would uh, hail Jesus as a hero. Uh, I mean, he's a historical figure that, that gave his life for his cause and, and, and served those who were in need. So most people would say Jesus is a hero. A fewer amount of people would claim Jesus is Lord. 
Now, Lord is a foreign word to us. It's a foreign concept to us. We don't use the word Lord anywhere other than church. We don't know what a Lord is because we don't live in a monarchical society. We don't have kings, queens, princes, lords. But um, we can say that a Lord is someone who has outright authority over a person. A Lord is someone that has outright authority over a person. Now, we don't know what it feels like to have somebody as an outright authority over us. If you went to work tomorrow and uh, your boss says, hey, I need to come in for a staff meeting. And he says, hear ye, hear ye. From now on, I am no longer your boss. I am your Lord and you must serve me faithfully. I mean, come on. You'd laugh as you're laughing now and you'd quit and file a lawsuit in five minutes. I mean, we don't understand the concept of Lord. It's laughable to us. I mean, we're Americans. This is still the Wild West, right? We are fiercely independent. We resist power. And so anybody who tries to exercise Lord-like power, we just resist. We'll go the other way in a heartbeat. Now, we have bosses. We also have politicians who are in places of leadership. And let's just say our local mayor gets on local TV, Channel One or whatever, and and says to the residents of the city, hear ye, hear ye, I am no longer your mayor, I am your Lord, you must serve me outright, you must pay all your taxes to me, and that's the way it is. No way, I mean, that's such a foreign concept. We don't understand the concept of Lord. But 2,000 years ago, during the time of Christ, they understood emperor, they understood Lord, they understood outright authoritarian power. Now, here's a reality about Jesus. Jesus not only has lordship authority, but he has divine authority. Scripture calls Jesus the fullness of divinity, the full nature of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. He has divine authority, but here's the very interesting part about divine authority or divine lordship, it is never imposed. Divine authority is never imposed by force or by threat, never. Read your scripture. Church people might want to impose it by threats, but Jesus never imposes his lordship by threats. He gives an invitation. He gives an invitation to to deem him lord of our life. Well, what does lord mean? It simply means Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. That's what it means. So at some point in our our walk with God, we get to a, a point where we deem him lord. He's not just our hero. He's not just someone we admire from a distance. He's in charge of our life. Now, none of us has this entirely dialed down, right? It's a goal. We deem him in charge, and then we spend the rest of our life submitting to his loving lordship. That's what it's about. Now, the idea of lordship might be mocked, uh, especially when it comes to Jesus. If we declare Jesus as Lord, there's a lot of people that are going to roll their eyes, right? This is the age of information. It's the age of modernism. It's an age of science, right? So it's kind of ridiculous in our modern times when somebody says, a man who lived 2,000 years ago is Lord of my life right now, that every bit of it sounds strange. But how can it be that someone who lived 2,000 years ago is Lord of my life right now and Lord of your life right now? A few things to consider. We can have Jesus Lord by example. He lived quite a life, and we can say he's in charge of my life, so I want to follow his example. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We look at the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. 
We look at how he gave selflessly and sacrificially to benefit other people. And we can say, he's Lord of my life, I'm gonna follow his example. And his example was a suffering servant. He suffered. Now, we don't quite understand what that means. Again, we're here in the West. It's, it's very prosperous and very free. There are quite literally no physical consequences to following Jesus Christ. Right now, at this very moment, there are millions of people all over the world who are worshiping Jesus and following Jesus in fear. It's illegal. They might be surrounded by uh, a culture that is against Christianity. They're worshiping underground. Uh, they are living in fear. Maybe their relatives have been arrested. Millions of people are truly suffering. About 100,000 Christians lose their life every year for their faith. 100,000 of them. So to them, 1 Peter 2.21 is very real and very literal. They are following the examples of Jesus Christ by suffering, literally. Now, we don't have literal physical suffering here for our faith. It, it doesn't exist. In fact, I can make a really strong argument that if you are a Christian, your social status actually rises a little bit. You're in a network of people. There's a lot of advantages around that. We're totally free, right? Zero risk, zero threat. So for us, suffering doesn't mean laying down our life the way Jesus did. But for us, you could have a measure of suffering by living selflessly, by being kind and generous, by forgiving, by being generous, right, to, to others. This is what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ. This is what it means to have Jesus Lord by example. It means I no longer live for myself. I no longer live for myself. This life is not about this guy right here. And for those of us who, who want to deem Jesus as Lord, it, it's, it's about dying to self. I no longer live for me. I live for others. To put it in rancho language, I want to live for the glory of God and the betterment of others just like Jesus. That's the determination to have Jesus as Lord following his example. But there's a deeper level of lordship as well. And I'll call this Jesus Lord in spirit. And I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is is spoken of in the scripture a lot. We have talked about God in, 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 in triune ways, Father, Son, Spirit. There's a Godhead there, impossible to describe. I'm not even gonna try, but God is singular and plural. There is one God and a plural expression, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit has a very distinct role in Scripture. The Spirit binds the Father to the Son and binds the Son to the Father. The Spirit empowers the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Son into the church. And so the Spirit is the relationship that we get to enjoy between us and God. When we are baptized, it means being identified by the Spirit of God in unity of relationship with God himself. The Spirit is the relationship core of our relationship with God. Now, this is what it means to have Jesus as Lord in spirit. It's not just admiring his lordship by example, but it's a personal relationship with God. It's hard to articulate. I can't really explain it. I can't give you many examples other than to say maybe this. I have a spiritual relationship with my wife. I am not just a sack of carbon and water coexisting with another sack of carbon and water, right? Uh, it's more than that. There's a soul-to-soul -soul connection there. It's a spiritual connection that I can't quite explain. I can explain the sack of carbon and water. It's hard to explain the spiritual relationship with my wife, right? I could try, but it would be kind of awkward. There's a direct spiritual relationship with God, a soul-to-soul, -soul, if you will, relationship with God. And so I can enjoy that spirit-to-spirit, soul-to-soul relationship with God, and I can deem him Lord in that relationship. He's in charge in this relationship,
as my wife is in charge of the God is in charge of the relationship. It's a lordship by spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says this, you were included in Christ, bound to Christ relationally. When you heard the message of truth, when you believed that message of truth, you were marked in him with a seal. What's the seal? The promised Holy Spirit. We are in relationship with God directly by his spirit. So there's a lordship of example, a lordship of spirit, and there's a lordship in a shared cause. Jesus is Lord of a shared cause. We've studied the life of Christ all summer, and every week we come across this theme, this cause of Christ, that Jesus broke every cultural and religious norm to bring the world close to God. This is what Jesus did. Broke every cultural, societal, religious norm to bring the world close to God. And so when we deem Jesus Lord, not by compulsion, force, threat, but when we willingly say, Jesus, you're in charge of this life here, we're signing up for this cause. We're signing up for this cause. And so looking at the life of Christ is so important. We see what he did, and then we wanna do the same because he's Lord of our life. Jesus cared for the outcast, Jesus helped the sick, he befriended the lonely, he embraced those who were in need. He welcomed the children. He hung out with people labeled sinners by the religious elite. That's what Jesus did. If Jesus is hero and Jesus is Lord, we sign up for that cause. The cause of Christ was nothing less than loving everyone everywhere to show the love of God. And that's the theme of our 50th anniversary, September 15th and 16th. You've got to block that week, and I don't care what you're doing, cancel it, be here. September 15th and 16th, 15th is the, the gala supporting community mission of hope, helping people in need. The 16th is a massive Sunday morning service right here on our lawn, and we're going to bring everybody together and have a great party and picnic around what God is doing through our church, loving everyone everywhere. The cause of Christ is something to be embraced. The cause of Christ is something to be celebrated. The cause of Christ is something to submit to. He is Lord over a cause that we are signing up for, to love everyone everywhere. So Jesus is my hero. Jesus is my Lord. Finally, Jesus is my Savior. He's my Savior. The very first sermon ever preached with a brand new church, Acts 2.36, let everyone be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. And there's a difference here. Um, we know what it is to have Jesus as kind of an admired, distant hero. We know what it's like to have Jesus as Lord. He's Lord by example. He's Lord in relationship. He's Lord by the, the shared cause, the cause of Christ. But having Jesus as Savior is something that even goes a little deeper. As uncomfortable as we are with the term Lord, we are probably more uncomfortable with the term Savior. Savior is an admission that I need what? Saving. I need saving. And I do need saving. Ask anybody who knows me. I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. I'm definitely not perfect. I am in need of saving. So what does it mean to be saved by Jesus? This Savior, Jesus Christ, forgives he forgives. I will, I will tell you with every bit of confidence I can muster that virtually every single person on the face of the earth defines their relationship with God by guilt. I remember my youngest memories of God are memories of guilt. And I'm talking about like five or six years old and I wasn't raised in the church, but every little bit you hear about God and every little religious thing you hear here and there is always about guilt and sin. And so even at like five years old, I remember thoughts of God and just being kind of terrified, right? 
And that stupid little children's prayer, and I'll lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's like this terror, right? I am not good enough for God. There's no way. If I'm dead tonight, I am burning. I mean, I'm like five years old. It's ridiculous. And that goes, that goes till death for most people. They define their relationship with God by guilt. And some of it's understandable. We know we're not perfect, and what we think about God is perfect. And so we think we're in so much trouble, we are busted. Jesus saves us from that. He saves us from that because he forgives us. He forgives us. Romans 3.23 and um, through uh, 25 is the most concise and precise explanation of our forgiveness found in Christ Jesus. It starts with a very famous verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You agree with that statement? Everybody here? Sinful? Anybody want to stand up right now and say, well, that doesn't apply to me? Anybody? No. We have all sinned. We all have done things wrong. We have all hurt somebody at some point. We have all kind of failed to honor God and benefit the lives of others. We've all sinned. We have all played a part in breaking this world that God loves. This is the bad news. The nice thing about God is he turns the bad news around in a hurry. We are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. What does the word redemption mean? It means an exchange. A price is paid to buy back something. God the Father and God the Son made a covenant before time even began that Jesus would be the one to pay the price to buy a broken world back to God. The price he paid, he paid for the suffering and the sin and the shame, the scorn of the world was all laid upon him and he died for it. That's the price paid to win the world, buy the world back to the heavenly father. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. He's an atoning sacrifice. He made what was wrong right. He turned it around and we received that by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now that gets a little technical. The author of Romans, Paul was a lawyer. He gets very technical. I'm just gonna make it simple. This world is broken. We helped break it. But instead of God just pouring out wrath upon this broken world, instead of God just pouring out wrath upon us who helped to break it, he was patient. He held back, that's what it means to forbear, he held back wrath that was in his right to execute on this earth. He held it back. And as he holds back wrath and vengeance, he sends forth his son in love. And his son Jesus, the perfect one, bears the full wrath of God upon himself. The punishment that we deserve breaking this world was placed upon Christ. Every one of our failures, our guilt, our shame, placed upon Christ and he died for it all. He is the forgiver. God will never hold a sin against us because he held our sin against Jesus Christ. We're forgiven. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's a Savior because he forgives. He's a Savior because he unites us with God. He doesn't just forgive our sin, but he unites us 
with God. We are in a perfect relationship with God because of the cross of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20, here's this plea from God. Be reconciled, be brought near to God. Don't think of, uh, uh, of ourselves as separate from God, defined by guilt. Be reconciled, brought near to God. Now, how does God bring us near to him? God made him who had no sin, this is Jesus Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He became the sin of the world on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just imagine Jesus coming up to us. What's wrong in your world? The sin, the shame, the guilt. What's wrong in this world? He just says, I'll take that. And what he leaves instead is nothing but his righteousness. When God the Father thinks of you, looks at you, defines you, he defines you as righteous. You are righteous. You are perfect in his eyes. You are a dearly loved son and daughter of God without blemish. Jesus took everything wrong with you and left everything right with Jesus. That's the exchange. That's the redemption. That's the price that Jesus paid. He took it all. The only thing God the Father sees in you is perfection. All he sees in you is the perfection of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ took our imperfection upon himself on the cross. What an incredible gift. It's who we are. We are united with God in a perfect relationship, unbroken and unbreakable. The Savior forgives us, the Savior brings us to God, and finally the Savior brings a new life of love. There's a new life of love to be lived through the cross. Let me explain out of Galatians 2.20, very famous verse. It's our declaration today right here, right now. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Having Christ as Savior means we are saved to live a new life. Not just saved from wrath or from punishment, but we are saved to live a new life. And it's, it's living a life that's crucified. It's living a life that has been crucified with Christ. I brought a cross here. This cross hangs in my office. It is um, there with a number of little artifacts I have uh, that just remind me of my history of faith my history with my family, my history in ministry. I've got things all over my office just as little reminders. This hangs prominently when I first walk in, I see it. It's not just a wall decoration. I kind of like the, uh, you know, gothic look. And anyway, uh, it's not just a decoration. It's something I look at every day and I have this little Galatians 2.20 prayer. God, I want to live crucified, crucified with Christ, die to self, live for the glory of God, live for the betterment of others, I am nowhere near where I want to be in that. I've got a long way to go. All in a culture of grace, all empowered by God, right? It's a wonderful journey, a saved life, live for the glory of God and the betterment of others. It's a life lived through the cross. So the image I have is, is to live with the cross as the lens that I see all of life through. This is the goal. I don't do it perfectly. But to see the cross as the lens I live my life through. So in relationship with my wife, I wanna see her through the lens of the cross. I am dead in that relationship. That's the goal, die to self. She does not live for my benefit. This is my, my, my head here. She doesn't live for my benefit, I live for her benefit. So if there's ever a day, not that it ever happens, where she doesn't make me feel the way I wanna feel, <laughs> I think she's in this service, never happens. I'm dead, there's no one to defend. That person's dead. 
Scott Treadway is dead, crucified with Christ. So I live for her benefit. My joy is to live for her benefit. That's the goal. You can talk to her about how well I do that. It might be a long conversation. That's the goal. To be a married man through the lens of the cross. With my kids, four kids, to see them through the cross. I am dead. They don't live for my benefit. They don't live for my convenience. They don't live to make me look good. They don't live so I can brag about A's and athletic accomplishments. I live for them. This person is dead. Their dad is dead. I live for them. For their benefit. To make sure they have every opportunity to to grow up in a Christ-centered way, humbly serving the world around them. That's my job as dad. I'm dead. Neighbors, friends, the stranger, this guy is dead. We get to a four-way stop at the same time. I'm, you can't rush for the gas. I'm dead. Hold up a little sign. I'm dead. Go. Two people walking to the door at the same time of a Starbucks. You know, you first. Are you first? I don't need to park in the front. I can park in the back. Who cares? I'm dead. That's the goal. That is the goal. And one of the reasons why we're laughing a little is because it's just so not the human nature to work like that, right? Human nature is, I want my way, and I've got, I want to be heard. Uh, I'm right. You're wrong. Um, you know, pay attention to me. Respect me. That's human nature. Our goal is to live life through the lens of the cross, crucified with Christ. Jesus is my hero. Jesus is my Lord, and that's a lifelong process, and Jesus is my Savior. We're a fairly large church, and so for a lot of us, we could say the same thing. He's my hero, my Lord, and my Savior, but there are people here today where that's simply not the case. You're at church, great, we're happy to have you here, and maybe this message today is the day that you're going to look back on for the rest of your life, and you're going to say, that's the day that I made Jesus my hero, my Lord, and my Savior. It's a wonderful life. I'm telling you, it is incredible. Might not sound all that sexy to die for yourself, but I'm telling you that life is an amazing life. It's an amazing journey. And that journey can start for you today. I am not a Christian because I was born into a Christian household. We did not go to church growing up. Did not go to church growing up. I'm not a Christian because I was desperately in need of a crutch, this desperate kid in need of something to kind of cling on to. That wasn't me. I'm not a Christian because I decided to join a religion following the doctrines, tenets, rites, and rituals of a religious community. That's not me. I follow Jesus to this day because of the cross. I was invited to go to a youth group concert right here in town, a little church and a little chapel called Rancho Community Church just up the road. That chapel's still there. And it was a 1980s Christian concert, so you know the concert was horrible. (laughs) And it was, but it was Rancho California. We had a thousand people living here and a lot of cows. And so when that church was open, (laughs) you know, a lot of us went. Awful concert. I think it was the bass player that came up and he just gave a simple message, very short message. It wasn't really refined, but I remembered two things. Number one, I remember very clearly that when I had thoughts of God, all I knew was guilt. I'm not good enough for God. God wants more for me. That's all I knew. I'm not good enough for God. I'm disappointed to to him, and I probably deserve to be punished by him. That's all I knew. But then I heard the message of the cross, that Jesus Christ took my sin. Jesus Christ paid the price for it. Jesus Christ forgave me and showed me how much he loves me. 
by giving his life on a cross. I knew my guilt and I knew my forgiver. And it was the old school altar call, you know, close your eyes, raise your hand, walk the aisle, and I did it. And I'll never forget that day. And even though I've grown in faith and grown in knowledge, grown in ministry, grown in life here and there, I always look back at where it began, and it began with the cross, the love of Christ. And so as I close in prayer today, I'm going to show an image of the cross. You can choose to look at it if you want to just meditate on the price that Jesus paid for you, the love of God poured out for you. If you want to pray, closing your eyes kind of the traditional way, you may do so also. But for those of you who have yet to have Jesus as your hero, deem him your Lord and receive him as Savior, this is the time. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your deep, unconditional, unwavering love. You proved your love by sending your son, Jesus Christ, the fullness of divinity, to take on the fullness of humanity, to live a life of selfless service and sacrifice, and to give his life as the atoning sacrifice, as the the price to pay that redeemed us all. He gave his life, taking the full suffering, sin, shame, scorn of the world upon himself. He took it all. And he laid his life down as the suffering servant to show the full measure of love. And so, God, we receive that love. No longer will our relationship with you be defined by guilt and shame, thinking we're condemned or or disappointing you. Because we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because we accept him as our hero, because we deem him Lord and receive him as Savior, our relationship with you is defined by love and grace. All you see in us is the righteousness of Christ. Our sin is removed, forgiven, done away with. There's no guilt. There's no shame. You are a loving heavenly father, and you declare that we are dearly loved, perfect daughters, perfect sons as a gift of grace. We receive the cross of Christ as a forgiveness of our sin. We receive the resurrection of Christ as the victory that we have, the new life that we get to live, a life very much like the life of Christ, who broke every social, cultural, religious norm to show the love of God to a world in desperate need of grace. We're signing up not only to have Jesus as forgiver, but we are signing up to advance the cause of Christ, to love everyone everywhere. We receive the free gift of your grace and forgiveness through Christ Jesus, your son. And everybody said, amen.